0: hey welcome to the podcast i'm jeffrey masters and this is lgbtq and a from the advocate today i'm talking to joel kim booster joel's a stand-up comedian a writer an actor and perhaps most impressively he's been on grinder in every state in america you'll hear us talk about that about touring the country his comedy dating sex and asian stereotypes Joel says there's a piece of him that has always felt apart from the queer community because of perceptions and expectations and stereotypes surrounding his race. So we talk all about that. Now, as always, if you enjoy the interview, please subscribe to the podcast and tell each and every single one of your friends online and in real life. When you do that, it is one of the biggest ways to help us grow. Thank you so much to everyone who's done that. All right, let's get to it. Without further ado, here's Joel. Okay, great. Let's do it. Let's do it. There's a lot of things I want to talk about. Great. But first, I'm fascinated that you ended up in this
1: talkative career where you're talking on stage Uh since you were homeschooled growing up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a direct response to that. I don't, I don't actually know. It's so funny because my entire family is very introverted, um, and I don't want to make the stereotype that all homeschooled kids have social, uh, bad social skills. I will say, in my ex- my anecdotal experience, it is true though. <laughs> okay, good. I will agree completely. <laughs> I'm glad that's not like wildly offensive. I, I don't know if there's a study that's been done, but it it is definitely. I mean, I was involved in a lot of like homeschool church adjacent activities, and it might be it might be the church adjacency too. honestly my parents were very hands-off uh in terms of homeschooling so uh tragic it's so it's so funny they kind of wanted to have their cake and eat it too we were very poor so they both had to work so no one was watching us no one was teaching us i would sort of be handed a textbook and instead of being taught from the textbook i would just like sit outside and read a history textbook sort of cut like it was a novel basically and um there would be no like papers or anything like that I, I i didn't have to write my first like paper or anything like that until i was in maybe like f- my freshman year which is when they sort of transitioned me to this online school wow um and that's when i started and i remember the first paper i ever wrote For this history course that I was taking online, the teacher like emailed back and was like, what is this? This is not what a paper is supposed to look like. And it was, it, it's, was deeply traumatic because all I wanted growing up was normalcy. I wanted to be normal. I wanted to have like a normal school experience. I wanted like a normal family who, you know, all of that. And so to be told, I remember like, I remember telling my mom one time, I was like, it's weird that we don't do like homework. It's weird that, like, I'm just, like, reading from a textbook and not really, like, doing homework. Like, why aren't, like, my friend, my neighborhood friend Kurt had to, you know, write, like definitions down as homework and my mom was like okay if you want to do that here do that and like that we did that for like a week I don't
0: mean this in like a judgmental way but like did you like learn yeah I mean here's the thing
1: I got very lucky that I love to read like really early on early I was like reading full chapter books at like five and six you know like I remember the first book I read when I was like I think it was like five or six was uh, Matilda and I like finished it in like a day and a half, and my parents were so impressed by that. And uh, that, I think that very early positive reinforcement, because I remember my mom like being like, Whoa, wait, you finished it? And then sort of grilling me and asking me questions about the book to make sure, because I think they thought I was yeah. fucking with them. Um, well, I mean, luckily you had that like
0: love of reading, because you could have very easily like ended up having no desire for like intellectual curiosity. Oh, no,
1: yeah, exactly. And so by the time when I did finally go to public school, I, um... How old were you? I was 16. I was very, like, advanced in terms of, like, reading and writing, I I got there. I think because, like, reading and writing are sort of a connected skill. So I was, like, in AP English and history courses and, like, killing the game there. Math and science was a horror show. It was, I mean, that is, those are foundational sort of, like, subjects that you, like, you you can't just skip ahead and, and sort of have, you know read a bunch of of hard books and then jump in sort of understanding how to talk about it. Totally. It was um, pretty tough.
0: So were you aware that your social skills were potentially lacking once you got to school at 16?
1: Uh, I think so. I was always like, um, people liked me. But I do think that there were gaps in that sort of education too, that would come sort of uh, become very glaringly obvious in certain social situations. Like I didn't have a, a, a filter like I had a lot of impulse control problems in terms of like what I would say when I would say them, um, which, you know, it made me a very funny and then sort of like quirky person that people and I think people liked that about me. And then people also like would sometimes be like, shut the fuck up. Like, what are you saying? I remember like just constantly like I never knew where the line was. And that was that was really hard for me as a teenager. And then now as a, as a comedian, I, I sort of have to like get myself back to that place because um, that is like a big part of, of I think uh, my act is, is sort of going to places that are uncomfortable that people don't normally like to talk about. And that's what I, I spent years trying to like sort of, condition out of myself
0: oh right because i guess i learned impulse control but it was like gradually over time yeah i was in 16 like what is this concept you know despite your upbringing for lack of whatever despite your upbringing and, and homeschooled and religious family i was surprised to read that you were also out of the closet
1: yeah well i mean the thing is is i i knew really early on that i was gay i was always really interested in sex from like really early age i started jerking off when i was really young like how young is young eight
0: Oh, that is young.
1: Yeah. Actually, I don't know if that's young or not. I don't, I think it's a, I think it's slightly below average. I think it's like, slightly younger than average. And I remember looking up in the Encyclopedia Britannica what cum was. I like remember, I, I don't even remember how I figured out to look up like semen. I think I was just like looking up sex stuff in our giant Encyclopedia Britannica collection and just sort of like literally like <laughs> just like a bunch of them open, like cross referencing shit. And I was still, I'll still, I'll never forget the day I read the uh, entry on semen and I was like, I felt like a fucking genius. I was like, oh, that's what that is. I remember, I still remember the first time I really actively did it. Like, I, I remember excusing myself from an episode of Baywatch Nights that was playing at like, must have been like 4 p.m. on in syndication on like USA. And like, my brother and I sitting there watching it and being like, I am going to go <laughs> and think about this intro credit sequence alone in my bed. Um, and yeah, and so I was always like really interested in sex and like very aware of my sexuality from a really young age and then slowly became aware that it was wrong and or quote, I mean, not really wrong, but like sort of under the auspices of my house and, and our religion was wrong and sort of tried to repress that. And we didn't talk about sex in my house and we didn't talk about sexuality in my house. I remember... The one time I was probably like nine or 10 and there was like an episode of 2020, which I was obsessed with watching as a child. I stand Barbara Walters from a young age and it was about like these two gay dads and it was like really like I I don't know what year it must have been, but it would have been like really radical that these two men were raising a child. And I remember my dad sort of standing and being like, that's wrong, like telling me like sort of unequivocally like that's wrong. And so uh, there, this, there's no subtext there. There's no subtext. Wow. And, um, and so uh, it was really hard and I repressed a lot. And I even remember like, so it caused a lot of emotional issues for me. So all this to say, like when, they fi- when I finally convinced them to let me go to public school and I finally had a little bit of freedom, like just like th- that much space away from them, which our, my high school was, you know, maybe a 10 minute walk from my house, that much space within the, that first month, I went to a party where I drank uh, for the first time, I smoked weed for the first time. Uh, about a month after that, I probably came out of the closet. A week after that, I sucked a guy's dick for the first time. Um, it was sort of gaslit into sucking his dick while we were watching his eighth grade production of Music Man on VHS, but that's a different story. Um, and, um, what a sexy movie. Yeah, I know. Uh, he was Harold Hill.
0: That's really fast to do all those things. Like yeah, right away. I mean,
1: well, the, I think like it, I was a powder keg, you know? Like I, there... I was not allowed to develop sort of gradually over time, and so like when it when I finally had the opportunity, I just sort of exploded with all of this the opportunity that I suddenly had, and I didn't know if I'd have again. You know, like it you that when you're a teenager and you're that part of your brain impulse control is is sort of developing. I think for me that coupled with this fear of like not really understanding when I would have the opportunity to do any of this again like sort of grabbing at all of these opportunities and all of these experiences as soon as they were available to me because i I had no idea what my life was going to look like a year ahead of that
0: that's fascinating
1: yeah. And so you were hooking up with guys in high school. Yeah. Um. Luckily, I, I mean, it was mostly through MySpace. Nothing like super shady. All teenagers. I had more boyfriends in high school than I had, than I've had as an adult. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Um, more. Yeah, definitely. Wait, what is that number? How many as a high school? I had um, three or four, I guess, in high school. It's a lot. Um. And I guess I like, I, by the time I went to college, I had hooked up with me, me, six guys, probably. Yeah. Six penises. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I feel like I skipped over
0: the fact that you said that you were like gaslit in a sucking dick. Was that like a traumatic no, experience? No, no, no. This okay. is, I, it's,
1: it's, I'm, I'm we don't have joking. to just focus on it. Just no, no, make no, sure. no. I mean, this is uh, the my the guy was very savvy, and he was like, I was always like pushing like the envelope sexually with my first boyfriend, and he was like, let's like let's go for it, and he was like, no, 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 no we shouldn't, we shouldn't. And then one night, I just like. You know, I would always reach for his dick and he'd sort of bat me away. And then one night I like went there and he didn't. And I was like, well, wait, you're supposed to stop me here. Like, this is, I'm not supposed. And then I was like, I guess I, I guess I keep going. And then that is how it happened. Gotcha. Yeah. So is it weird for your parents that you're now a publicly out gay person? Um, I have no idea. Honestly, I have no idea how aware they are of my career. I don't know. I don't think they've watched any of my work. I don't think they are super interested. When no friends like have ever like said to them, like, "Hey, Joel"? I don't know. Th- I mean, my parents live in such an insular world. Like, I don't think you. Uh, a lot of people understand how the church is such a sort of like. I mean, they don't watch TV. They don't. They're not. They're on Facebook, but it's all so uh, such a, a very specific bubble. You know, it'll be interesting to see, like, as things progress, if I'm in something huge or big, like, that's sort of inescapable, how they'd react. When you do, like, a late night show, do you tell them about that? No. Because it doesn't really have anything to do with them. I don't crave that sort of approval from my parents, and I I really haven't in a long time. And that's, I think, like, some people are like, well, that's sad. And it's like, well, no, I think we, we ask different things, and we require different things from our families. And... I sort of, um, you know, the things that I think some people get from their parents, I get from different sources and I, I feel fulfilled. And it's not like, it doesn't feel like a loss to me, um, my relationship with my parents now, which is pretty fine. You know, we call and we talk and I see them once or twice a year and, and it's always loving and I know that they love me and I love them very much and very deeply, but um, I don't need the things that they can't give me. And I sort of accepted that about them a long time ago. And uh, I think our relationship is healthier because of it. Sounds like it. Yeah.
0: Are you still religious at all? No,
1: I wouldn't say that. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to deprogram yourself from that when you're so in it for so long. Like, I mean, right before I came out, I wanted to be a youth pastor. Like that was how deep in the church that I was. And, um, so i i would i wouldn't say I believe in God and certainly not in like the Christian religion or the organized church or anything like that, but it is like I am still like pretty like dippy about like spiritual stuff. It's so hard for me to believe that all of this is random and i I look for meaning in ways that like i don't know i've', I've it's not like astrology like I still am like i don't know if that's real but you I do look for little ways to find meaning and and sort of like Living in LA, it's really nice to just meet people who are like the universe yeah, and um, and just sort of like uh, accepting that. But I don't know. Yeah, I think agnostic is probably the label I would go to if if a gun to my head.
0: There's not one. It's fine. It's fine. Let's transfer to talking about Asian stereotypes just because you sometimes talk about it in your sets in terms of dating and just Mm -hmm. life. I bring it up because I think it's fascinating that people are able to say that they are not attracted to Asians. and They're able to say that with a certainty.
1: Yeah. I mean, so my spoiler plate response to that whenever i see it because people get very defensive about their preferences and um specifically i think like it's hard as an asian person to just speak to it directly because a lot of times it can like the immediate thing is like oh you just have sour grapes like blah 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 like you're just mad because people don't want to fuck you and for me it's like it's not that i care if if you don't want to fuck me or not it's just um you cannot find me attractive but to us as- make an assumption in about an entire race of people like the inherent assumption in i am not attracted to asian men is that we all look the same or that we there is an innate quality about asian men that is it like you cannot separate and so like uh, that is what i take issue with like you can say like uh i'm not attracted to joel kim booster like that does not offend me there's a lot of reasons to not be attracted to me um i don't you know check a lot of boxes and that's fine but there are i i wager if you put on paper what you like like it's like i like a bigger guy with uh chest hair and facial hair or in this level of masculinity like if those because those are often, like let's be real like that is the reason that i think um That's the thing behind No Asians is I like a guy with big dick who's masculine, who's muscular, who's X, Y, and Z, all of the things that are not associated with Asian men typically in terms of the stereotypes that we see in the media and and elsewhere. Like, there are Asian men that exist who who would check those boxes. Of course. So I think, like, that's the frustration is it's not – it's like – and in the meantime, you sort of blanketly saying, like, no Asian men is just reinforcing those messages. And it's – it's it does become harmful. I mean, it it was, like – it did affect me when I was younger. It affects me less now. Yeah. Um. But, I mean,
0: when you see no Asians on, like, a dating profile, yeah. are you able to quantify how often – is that – it's not, like, 50% of the time, like – Give me I percentage. would say
1: it's 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 weird because like I guess when I'm I, I you know I travel all over the country and I've seen Grindr in almost every state. What a what a thrill and what Congratulations. a Congratulations. I would say in it's weirdly in places like LA, San Francisco, the the West Coast, and places where there are higher Asian populations, like Seattle, where I see it more. If I'm here in L, here in LA I see it every day. Um Oh really? Yeah. Here in LA I see it every day. In San Francisco I see it with less frequency i think cuz there's bigger pushback for it in san francisco um but like in places like seattle i'll see it and weirdly in places like michigan or like the midwest where we aren't we don't have such a high sort of um, population where it's not something that they're thinking about because they're not getting messages from Asian men. I think it's like less at the forefront because they're yeah. like, I think in, in the Midwest, you're more likely to see white only,
0: which is... Oh, okay. Uh, even is, better. E-
1: yeah, even better. Uh, sort of a I, lateral move.
0: I never um, want to shame anybody for what they're desire to or not desire to, but there is a... Like there is a mutability to our desires, and like so many things affect it. And just like on a personal level, if I thought that I was not attracted to an entire racial group, yeah. I would need to like look inside myself and be like, "What's
1: going on there?" And and yeah, there's an ar- there's a lot of arguments about this. And I also I'm you know uh, it's tough, especially when you get to our age that uh, you know, it's sort of I'm thirty now, and when I meet people in their thirties or late twenties, it's like sort of like well you are probably set in w- in in that. Although I will say like as in the last like several years, my type has, or th- I've never really had like a very specific type, but sort of the swath of people that I fucked has grown much more broad than I would have ever imagined for myself in my early 20s. But I, I don't want to push people to be like, You should be, like, let's find an Asian guy that you're attracted to. For me, I think, like, just, like, I think we should all be interrogating our desires a little bit more, and I think that's, like, a healthy thing to do, and, like, I think about that a lot when I see a guy that I'm attracted to, and, like, you know, not not everybody wants to be thoughtful about it, and not everybody, and a lot of people are like, it's just instinctual, and it's pheromones, and, like, my dick responds to that, and I can't control that, and it's like, that's fair, but maybe, like, take an extra step sometimes to, like, think about that, and just as a general note, like, we have 400 characters on Grinder. Like maybe just like list the things you like. It just makes it a healthier environment for all of us to sort of exist in rather than just sort of seeing it out forefront. Like I don't like you. Um, yeah. Which is tough. And so that's all online stuff. And like in person, do you also see these assumptions and expectations? No. I mean, you know, it's almost, I'm I'm pretty like, immune to it or numb. I guess not immune, but more so numb to it now after being, you know, being on apps for practic almost eight years now. Like I, I'm sort of numb to sort of the words of it all and, and the idea of it all, uh, in a, in a profile. I will say I will, I always feel a little bit of the world and not in. I'm in a lot of... I, I sort of identify with a lot of different communities within the gay community. I'm very pro, like, our community. I get very frustrated with gay people who are sort of the... I'm not that kind of gay person uh guy who is like, I don't like the scene. I don't like going to bars. And I always sort of question, like, what do you think it's like there? Like and and it's always interesting to have that conversation because oftentimes they're like oh people aren't smart or they're shallow or they're um they're mean or they're insular or bitchy or blah 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 and it's like those people exist everywhere and also like there's a lot of inner life going on in a circuit party that you might not like want to admit like I'm there and I fucking read okay so um but it's weird because like I understand where those people are coming from when they're like I don't feel accepted I don't feel safe I don't feel um respected in those spaces and like I fully get that because I'm there and I'm like dancing and I'm good and then sometimes you interact with someone whose entire sort of view of someone's self-worth is wrapped up in fuckability and no matter how i like sort of force my body into a shape that is um more in sort of the zeitgeist of gay male desire i will always a little bit be apart from that world and i because of my race and because of perceptions about my race and i've and it's i've accepted it but it is tough sometimes to just like really be introduced to somebody and just have them look like through you and you know exactly why and it's because they're not attracted to you and it there's a way to like i am i'm not attracted to everybody i meet on a fucking dance floor but i still am able to treat people who i'm not attracted to with respect and hum- and like humanity you know and res- and and like a human being and i find that it does still happen and that i think for me is a bigger sort of existential blow sometimes um than seeing it sort of some random, you know, torso say, stop, if you're Asian, stop messaging me.
0: Yeah. And I guess I'm surprised to hear that to that extent, because I don't also think that you um, right away fulfill like the Asian stereotype. What do you mean? So I think of like the Asian stereotype as being like, Soft, polite, submissive. Yeah, I don't think that you are like mask or femme. or maybe I'll say it. I think you're mask and femme. Yeah, actually. I think
1: I I've always sort of identified sort of mid level. I think I'm a little bit depending like depending on I um I'm I like to I love to code switch. No, I it depends on who I'm with. Like if I'm deep family, I think I'm more femme leaning, but I think my resting. Energy is sort of right smack dab in the middle, which I love. And I have, uh, have had to learn to embrace my more feminine sides and sort of not be embarrassed or feel like I'm putting on my more masculine sides and things like that. I do think that's a very fraught conversation as an Asian person because I, it's interesting. A lot of people sort of project and assume that I'm a bottom and, and it, it's, it's an impossible conversation to have because if you get defensive about people assuming you're a bottom, it's like, then you get into like, well, I don't want to bottom shame. There's nothing inherently wrong with bottoming. I love to bottom. But also it's weird. It feels weirdly racialized sometimes. And so I do want to speak to that. And I also, but I also don't want to be like one of those like people who's like posturing about topping either. Like, because then it seems like you're putting a special emphasis on that position. And so it's like such a fucked up, like I just don't respond to anybody's assumptions about it anymore because there is no winning and especially online and an online discourse about it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's part of it coming from the background that I do, like there's a reason certain Asian stereotypes exist and it comes from like the way Eastern culture is. And I think like if the closer you are to that, like I was just in Japan and like, you know, there's a there's a plurality of human experiences and attitudes and, and personalities in Asia that exist. But there is like Eastern culture is different than Western culture. And the closer you are to it, I think, as an immigrant or a first gen or a second gen, like you are going to be closer to that that culture than I probably am as someone who was raised by, a, you know, a first generation German and a and, a, and you know, generation white mutt you know like so it is it is going to be different and i i guess i don't meet those stereotypes i'm not like necessarily like i I don't think about it in those terms and i don't i don't necessarily think people are registering that when they're talking to me uh, in social situations
0: and I think that those stereotypes, the mask femme, I mean, they are all reductive, t- definitely. Yeah. And I hate that I see you who has like, a muscular body and hmm. I think like,
1: oh, he's not that femme, you know, based on that one character trait. Right. And well, and that's like the fact that you think about, that's the sort of thing that we were just talking about of like interrogating that, of like taking the extra step. Like we all have thoughts that are like sort of immediate and that are ingrained in us and, and sort of work are, you know, a product of years of, you know the media diet that we've had and and the, the the culture that we grew up in and and things like that but like taking an extra step it's not like we don't want to sh- i'm not i don't want anyone to be ashamed of like having immediate thoughts of like oh that person's mask, mask because of x like we all have those thoughts but like taking a step to be like oh why did i think that and like is that right and is that correct and like interrogating those thoughts i think is really helpful and i think like we need to split the difference between like jumping on people right away and being like that's wrong that's fucked up that's not woken up and also just like gently asking people to like maybe like look in a mirror a little bit and like turn those thoughts around in their brain a little bit more and ask themselves where that what that's coming from and is it real and totally and i think that
0: i hang out somewhere in between mask and femme also like in the middle of the scale and yet i reluctantly say that because people will label me in ways that I like that blow my mind mm-hmm. like someone said I was the most effeminate person they know and I was like really <laughs> someone else I used to work with like a year ago was like oh are you gay at it? No. and part of me was like how did you not know yeah <laughs> and the other part of me was like oh like that felt so good and then I thought I was disgusted by like being happy about that yeah
1: and it's that's I mean that's fucked up we uh you know I'm writing on a show called the other two which we we talked a little bit about before we started recording, and like, there is a moment in an early episode where uh, the character, uh, one of our leads, you know, has that moment of like, Oh, you're gay. I didn't know that. And he voices, Thank you. And we, we talked a lot about that experience in the room because, you know, that room was uh, largely gay men, and, and we all had experience of either desiring that as, as young people or having that happen to us. And, having the internal sort of like thank you and we all sort of want to pass in a way or wanted to pass at some point in our lives and it was really important to us to have the other gay character on screen who said that say that's fucked up to voice that because i don't think we get that i feel like in the media we overcorrected. there was a time in the 90s where suddenly people were like the fact that jack is is a stereotype is is fucked up and and we need to fix that. And then at some point in the aughts, we overcorrected to the point where it feels like every gay character I've seen on screen is the the log line for the character is basically like, he's gay, but you'd never know it, you know? And and that is like so frustrating because it's not that Jack, Jack's effeminacy and stereotypical characteristics are not the problem. It's the fact that Jack has no inner life, you know? It's like, we can have effeminate characters and queenie characters and characters who are sluts and characters who are not like what we'd want to see maybe who are not aspirational but give those people are in my life but but they also have different layers below that and that's the right it's like those
0: people are real and exist but we can't only see that gay guy on tv because for a while it was just the clowns Mm -hmm. on top of this uh asian mystique Mm -hmm. let's call it (laughs) um, something that i see referenced about you in a lot of articles is the fact that you're adopted Uh uh-huh a lot of articles will reference that you were born in South Korea yeah. and then adopted and grew up in the Midwest. Yeah. And I just was struck by that because I don't see that part of people's biographies a lot. I, I don't say that referenced. Well, I don't or, think, or, think that there are or, a lot
1: of transracial adoptees who are sort of um, in the space right now. I mean, I, I know that it's not really something that is... Happening because I get a lot of messages from people who are like, "It's so great to see a transracial adoptee." I, I mean, I oh, so do you
0: purposely front that? Because yeah, of that? I
1: mean, it's it's a huge part of my first like special and my first album. It's it's very much a part was a very much a part of my story and sort of the narrative that I told on stage um, at an early age. And it's actually it's it's sort of hard now that I'm in this sort of second phase of my career where I'm developing this new special because I do feel like I have to like. I... (laughs) it feels like require I feel like I have to tell every audience before they come in like here's the homework you have to know this this and this about me for these jokes to really hit hard because like it's 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 like annoying to me now that I have to remind audiences who may not be familiar with my early work that I am adopted my parents are white I don't have I have a very uh, different sort of connection to the Asian community the Asian American community than um, an Asian person who is you know first second or third generation Asian um, are you saying that people need to know that buyer for in order to get your jokes and humor. No, I don't that's not necessarily true, but there are moments when I like talk about my family in ways that like where I I will like deal with my parents racism and like if I'm doing a, a a like a shorter set here in LA like if I'm doing a longer if I'm headlining at a club like I I usually have time to like sort of set that up with a joke, but it's very frustrating when I like wanna write a shorter when I'm doing a shorter set here in LA and like I have 10 minutes and I like forget. I forget that I'm adopted. In my mind my my mom is, my parents are white, and their whiteness is like a part of my life and a part of something that I think about. Um, and I don't have to, rem- and like, it's hard, I have to like consciously remind myself to tell the audience that in case they don't know that about me. Because otherwise, the jokes contextually don't make sense. They're like, oh, wait, like, your parents your mom is obsessed with like confederate statues i mean it still is a joke but it like it conjures a different picture like an asian woman like a an asian a korean mom being obsessed with uh, confederate statues is a very different story than my white mom being obsessed with confederate statues and so it it's like it is like something now i do feel like i have to set up so it is helpful the more that it is like sort of intrinsically connected to my brand is helpful for me on that level and it is also like it's something that i'm proud about it. it's something that i don't think is talked about enough i do wish that like you know it was more sort of coinc um coincidental, it's not the right word, but, you know, I feel like in the media, when we see an adopted narrative, it is usually about the adoption in a very dramatic way or something like that. And sometimes I just wish, like, let's, like, colorblind cast more. Like, give me more Brandy Cinderella. And I wish that more casting directors would have the balls and more showrunners and, and directors would have the balls to just do that. Because it's like, why the fuck not? Like, we exist, we're out here. It does, it's not something that I is at the forefront of my mind every day, but it is something that I've had to force to be at the forefront of my, like, creative brain because I know, as a stand-up, like, sometimes they need that context for jokes to make sense.
0: I also, like, wonder if people... Uh, think that like giving up a child is like the hardest thing they could possibly do is like impossible to imagine and if they're like fascinated by the fact that like i don't, I don't know why you were adopted but, like i think they like, right. put that on you and they like think like how could she have given him up and like it like clouds their minds I yeah wonder.
1: i think and that is something too that i feel very disconnected to the idea of genetic connection is very uninteresting to me in a way that like I mean, obviously, you know, like I've never been very interested in meeting my birth parents or finding out it's never some, I I was adopted very, very, very young. Um, I was three months, which I think is like probably around the time when they say like babies, um, Will connect with whatever, yeah. You know, like I could have grown up thinking a couch was my fucking mom if you told me it was. Um, at that point, point. and like the Hollywood narrative of adoption stories
0: is that you are completely obsessed with your birth yep. mom and need to find her, yeah, to find this
1: missing piece of yourself. Yeah, it does feel like a. It's so funny because I've I've been trying to pitch this show. I've been trying to convince a network to pay for me to go back to Korea, basically. And they, the question that always comes back is basically like, oh, and it's and the, and the central narrative of the docu series will be like finding your birth mom, and it's like, oh no, I'm I'm not not interested in that at all. I'm interested in like, connecting with my culture and like seeing where I came from sort of broadly in terms of like a cultural question and like, what it would have been like to be gay back in Korea and like all of these questions. But in terms of like finding my birth parents, it just seems so boring to me. Um, because I have like such a uh, interesting relationship with my parents. I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm more forgiving to women and lesbians about like the need to have biological children because I think there is a biological component to a woman's body that I will never understand. But I do, I am, and like, and it's not a hill I'm willing to die on. It's not something that I absolutely, I'm not an essentialist about. But I always raise an eyebrow when I, I meet gay men who are like, it's so hard be, with this surrogate and all of this stuff. And like, I know that adoption is very difficult as well, and it can be very expensive and time consuming and things like that. But I always do sort of wonder why it is sort of like the second option and not like, or like why we have this need to feel genetic like, can genetically connected to our children in a way. And again, like I'm coming from a very different POV than somebody who grew up in a family that where they're, you know, connected by blood. And like, I try not to be that judgmental, but it is like something that I wonder about specifically with gay men.
0: Well, I think um, that it's like goes back what you said
1: about like how you are one of the few
0: adoptive people, adoptive people in like the media. And so we just are not exposed to that being an example of a type of family that can
1: exist. Yeah, It is weird i I, that can't be true right like i no i I have to be there has to be more i it's weird because i i don't i can't think of any off the top of my head but i'm sure like please like tweet at me all the other adopted stars but like the
0: the other side of that too is that you have two adopted parents however so many people are raised by like a stepdad or stepmom we don't question that connection no and so we like give them that benefit yeah you mentioned Japan and going back to South Korea. We were talking about dating before. Mm-hmm. How does dating what is that adjustment like for you when everyone is Asian?
1: Uh, I mean, it it was interesting to it, you don't realize how much you internalize um being a person of color in this country until you are n- sort of no longer the minority. Um, because it was interesting, like, I realized, like, every day, like, just like little things, you worry about being a representative and being sort of and the things that you do being pathologists like I'm like sometimes I'll like jaywalk here in LA and I'll like get almost get hit by a car and I'll make eye contact with the driver and I'll be like well I just created a new stereotype (laughs) you know like fucking Asian people are always jaywalking or like that is it's always interesting to me when that's like the first thing like people insult about me or or like when I'm driving especially I mean I've joked about this like I am a very bad driver because I I don't do it very often and and, and whenever i like make eye contact with someone that i've cut off or like i fucked up somehow i'm always like oh fuck like i am an asian bad driver and like that is you know they're gonna pathologize that even more or even things with my body like sometimes i'm like i feel this like weird relationship to my dick and like i love my penis (laughs) you know it is great and gorgeous but like there is this moment every time before i whip it out that i'm like am I the first Asian person's penis that this person is going to see in a hookup? And like, do am am I going to measure up? Is this going to meet expectations, fall below expectations for this person? And having that like truly will drive you nuts. And I don't, and you know, there are probably people of color listening to this who are like, wow, I am not that wrapped up in my own experience. And I'm not worried about those things the way you are. But it is like, uh, real weight. And I didn't realize I was carrying it so heavily until I was in Asia for the first time and sort of walking around and realizing like, Oh my God, I'm just another face. I'm just another person in this crowd. I am just like another, like it is not, I It was so nice to just like blend in and, and feel a little bit more invisible in a way and just like not, you know, have to worry about the question uh, uh, having, like, the benefit of the doubt of, like, why did that person... Like, sometimes when I do things in public, I'm always, like, I don't even get the benefit of the doubt of, like, why did that person do that? Like, I I think a lot of people just assume, like, ugh, Asians, you know, <laughs> like, or gay people or something like that. And I think, like, in Asia, it was so nice to, like, get the benefit of the doubt of that question of, like, ugh,
0: why was that person an asshole, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, and you, you always blame it on being Asian.
1: I don't know. I think, like, I have... It's weird how much I like sort of innocuous uh, behavior has been pathologized to my race or my sexuality yeah. before it is shocking and wild to me how often guys and peers and friends quite honestly will be like oh you're eating that is that because you're gay and like this and that and the other thing in these assumptions and it's like no I it's just me and like it's like thank god you asked so how many times have have i done this in front of other straight people where they just assume it's because i'm gay and like that's a part of our community or something like that and like it's like it's a it's 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 a lot And, and racially i didn't realize how much i was carrying around until i was over there and sort of it wasn't an issue anymore and i could just like be free of that and it was nice
0: with the gay people who are in comedy, I see that there is a uh, there's like a close knit nature. Like you guys seem to be very supportive of each other. Yeah, does that my reading of that is it stems from the top? These established comedians, like the Guy Branhams that like support that supportive environment. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. Guy is someone that I like. I I know that Matteo and I have both like called Guy in panics over like existential crises we've had. Uh, Mateo Lane, by the way, um, like professionally and like gotten advice from. And he is sort of known as like the godmother. And it is interesting. I, I, I think like it's for really us, nice. it is like we, we're very lucky that we're in sort of this period where it doesn't feel like there's just room for one of us. And I think we've allowed ourselves to sort of let go of that mentality because like for, quite honestly like you know John Early is probably maybe one of the most successful gay comedians working right now and every time he gets bigger and bigger it just means that he is unable to take one of the dozens of roles that are written specifically for him <laughs> that all of the rest of us sort of eat up like I can't tell you how many times I've booked or gotten called in for a role that is so clearly written for John that then it's just work for the rest of us because it is Uh, it is sort of like a rising tide uh, lifts all boats sort of situation now and i feel very glad about that because you know i was just on an atlantis cruise working and i was paired the other comedian that i was paired with was jim david who was the first gay comedian to ever have a comedy central special and just like to talk to him i mean he's been in the business for as long as i've been alive wow and how long ago was that special i mean it would have been in the 80s i i i'm actually not sure when exactly the special was look it up i'm it's available online somewhere um but just like to talk to him of just like the isolation that he felt because he knew that there was not like they were only there was a quota to fill you know and or maybe not a quota but just sort of like a okay we let one of you in and that's it and sort of the like pulling the ladder up behind you sort of mentality of gay performers back then was very real. And I and very, and like, maybe it wasn't right. But it was like, you kind of understand where that sort of competition is coming from. Because it's like, if, if there's one available spot that they will open that they will deign to give to a gay comedian, then of course, you're gonna be like, fucking i want to get there first you know and i think like it's it's not so much of an issue anymore
0: they book two of you is that make it a gay show yeah exactly
1: it's like it's like saying that like john mulaney and zach galifianakis are are two like it it, it it would be insane to compare those two because they're both straight yeah and yet we it happens to us still it happens to us less i mean i'm constantly now on shows with a bunch of us and it feels great and i think it, it proves sort of the you know the differences and and the nuances between all of us now, which is great.
0: Totally. You mentioned uh, Zach Galifianakis and uh, John Mulaney. Mm -hmm. Those are two straight white comedians. Mm -hmm. And the path for that kind of comedian is very um, clear. You do stand up for a while, you tour the world, and you get booked on guest stars, and then you have your own show that you like headline on TV. Mm -hmm. And the path is less obvious for people of color, I think. Um, do you disagree? And like female comedians too? I,
1: I no, I, I do kind of disagree. I think it is the same. I just think it's a little bit more challenging. It's a longer? Maybe two. I think it's yeah. I think it maybe might be a longer period. I think the problem with that prescription is that it there is like there are so many different paths now. Like even it's changed so much since even like Louis and Aziz got their shows, which problematic i know in that model is changed so much because there's just so many entry points now and there's so many different kind of comedians i mean you look at people like Cole scola and like cole is not i would is not a stand-up by any means but like he carved out his own space i think in many ways john carved out his own space you know and like i think like Matteo and i are sort of going at it, sort of chipping away at it, the more traditional routes but there are so many people who are, are you know just like saying, fuck it, I'm going to create my own things, build my own audience, and then the industry sort of comes to you. So I was thinking that those
0: people did those untraditional routes because they had to, but also maybe for the first time ever in history um, these roots are available.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm doing it, I think I'm doing it pretty traditionally. And it's a, it's a source of, like, it's a source of deep pain how basic I feel. I would say my stand-up is much more similar to Mulaney's than it is to any sort of alt comic who is sort of changing the form of stand-up comedy. Like it's all up it's observational fucking comedy. That's what I'm doing. But I've never heard Mulaney joke
0: like you have about like uh your new baby niece not being your type, yeah. not wanting to date her <laughs> or have sex with her. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> um that's fair. I, I mean like maybe con- contextually it's it's different. Like, it's coming from a different life experience than maybe has been seen on stage before. And that's fair. But like, f- in terms of the form, in terms of like the way I am uh, approaching joke writing, it's all very much like set up punchline. Okay. Here's my life. Here's my observation about my life. It's just that my life happens to be very different from um, traditional stand up comedians that we've seen in the past. Whereas I think like people like Julio are not I've sort of thrown out the rules like Julio Torres like you watch a Julio Torres stand-up set and it is unlike anything that you will see both in form and content and I think like that is and like Mateo and I are both like sort of doing the very traditional thing and I think like there are comedians out there who are doing very non-traditional things and so I'm always like yeah I mean it's great that I'm I'm out there and I'm like pushing things because I'm talking about fucking anal sex and in like shit like that and like really gay unapologetic gay things and i'm i'm saying like this is broad enough and like i'm taking that material to the midwest when i tour and like idaho and iowa and all the other i states and proving that like this can work in comedy clubs but there are people who are like so far ahead of me in terms of saying like what if we just like flipped this entire medium on its head and so i guess like that I, i i i want i push back against
0: no, I'm glad you did. Yeah. So there's never a time when you're writing jokes and you're like, like when you're writing jokes and you say, this needs to be more cutting edge.
1: Um, I think it does push me to um try and be a little bit more creative. It de- it definitely like, there are a lot of first thought jokes that I have that work, that make people laugh. But I, I do sort of, I think like people, being around people like John or Lorelai or Patty like has definitely like pushed me to be like, What is like what what if we followed this thought a little bit farther and pushed it a little bit beyond like just my my own like first thought instinct of what a joke where a joke shouldn't comedy is so ubiquitous right now. Like there's a real appetite for it. And I think like there are a lot of audiences that are really intelligent and have like a very diverse comedy diet. And so like they're ready for weird shit. And so, like, when I do go to these comedy clubs in Bloomington, Indiana, like, I can go there with them and, like, I can be a little bit more experimental and they're sort of receptive to it in a way that I I don't think they would have been ten years ago.
0: That's fascinating. We are almost out of time, but okay. w- um, what is next for you? You're writing on the other two.
1: Uh, yes. You're on the TV show Shrill. The Shrill, which I'm so excited about. Um, yes, very excited. I cannot stress enough that it's a very small part, but I, I I do get to play John Cameron Mitchell's husband, which is was such a weird moment for me because short there was a summer I did Summerstock theater when I was still be a theater performer doing Thoroughly Modern Millie and the. Only only two DVDs that the company had... Um, that we would watch was wet hot American summer and short bus. And we would sort of have those on rotation. And that summer, like both those movies sort of shaped my entire aesthetic now as a, both a comedian and as just like a queer person in the world. And just to be able to like go tubing with John Cameron Mitchell and like sit and like lazily float down a river and like talk to him about short bus and like his life and Hedwig and all that was like such an incredible experience. It 80 is incredible. Um, it was the most it was the most fun it was it felt like summer camp honestly like filming it in portland was great like we would all just like sit in a house and like do bonfires it was amazing it's i think it's gonna be a really great show cool i can't wait thanks for doing this thanks for having me i'm sorry i feel like i talked a lot that's the point okay great
0: All right, big thanks to Joel for that. If you want to hear more from him, he's on Twitter at IHateJoelKim. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. If you'd be so kind as to help us spread the word about the show with a tweet or an Insta story, we would be eternally grateful. Thank you so much for that. We are excited to announce that lgbtq a is moving to Luminary. Luminary is a brand new podcast platform where you'll be able to listen to all the shows you already listen to. And if you upgrade, you'll get access to amazing ad-free shows only available on Luminary. So we're joining people like Trevor Noah, Malcolm Gladwell, Lena Dunham. If you want to learn more, there's a link in the show notes or you go to luminary.link slash LGBTQA. Do that now because they're running an amazing contest with some sweet prizes. So that's luminary.link slash LGBTQA. I also want to remind you that GLAAD is currently leading the progressive movement to fight for an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. This would provide explicit protections for women, for LGBTQ people, for communities of color, and for those with disabilities. If you want to join their growing movement or just learn more, go to GLAD.org/constitution. constitution. All right, that is it for today. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and again, I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. I'm fun. Come find me, I promise. We'll see you next week. Bye.